This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Over the last few years, some Americans have begun to wake up to the real threats to our national sovereignty that are posed by communist China. But aside from buying up our debt and cutting financial deals with certain elected officials and their families, did you know that China is also on track to become the largest landowner in the United States and that this is unfolding with the aiding and abetting of our own politicians? We're going to find out more about what's happening today from Tom DeWeese, who is president of of the American Policy Center and also the author of Sustainable, The War on Free Enterprise, Private Property and Individuals. Tom has written about this in a series, great series over at his website, AmericanPolicy.org, concerning China's threats to American sovereignty. And Tom, it's so good to welcome you back. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Janet. Thank you for having me. Thank you for writing about this because you have a whole lot of information I know in this series that was all new to me. I I know a lot of people regard China as maybe some kind of new Soviet Union, kind of this idea that, yeah, they're communists, but they're also capitalists and I like my cheap Walmart stuff. But, But you've actually said there is an essential difference here between what we went through with the USSR during the Cold War and what we're facing today concerning threats from China coming down to economics. Can you explain to people why it's different now than it was during the Cold War? Yeah, uh, it's, it's really interesting. The, I think the Chinese learned from the Soviets. Uh, the Soviets had a true communist operation and you know, destroyed industry, destroyed uh, any kind of free enterprise, destroyed people's uh, incentive to do anything. And what China did was they, uh, com- they don't compete, but they have uh, gotten these global corporations, the Walmarts of the world and so forth, to uh, you know buy products from them, and they manufacture them at a very cheap rate. Uh, the, the thing is that there are no private companies in China, so you're not dealing with a Chinese company. You're dealing with the Chinese government, yeah. and they have been able, through all this process, to stockpile billions and billions of dollars, and uh, you know, and then build their government, their power, their military, everything else. And they're also using that money to invest in the United States, to buy up property, to buy uh, companies, uh, to actually build development co- uh, uh, projects in the country, all kinds of things like that. Uh, none of that was ever done by the Soviet Union. They were just a dark, dead place. But these guys have figured out how to gain power by using the market to their advantage. Well, right. And and I know that you had referenced that in the past, this wouldn't have even been allowed under law. We would have been wise to this. What is going on? Because you talk about these immigrant investor regional centers and the role they play in China's ability to do this. Explain for people, if you would, Tom, what's going on, how they were able to do this and amass so much power and get so much money out of our economy and continue to you know press into our nation and get more land. 
Yeah, they have these. Uh, this is a federal program out of the U.S. Uh, Citizen and Immigration Service, and it, 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 you know, it's officially called Immigrant Investor Regional Centers. Uh, the short speak of it is EB5 Centers, and what it says is that uh, an applicant. A, uh, a country or whoever else is going to invest in this uh, would have to invest a million dollars in a, uh, a U.S. business. Uh, there is a caveat to it. it, it they could make it $500,000 if it's in an area of uh, very high unemployment or rural areas or so forth. But the idea is that if they make this investment, that uh, they have to pres- uh, create uh, at least 10 full-time American jobs. So if they do that, then they can uh, gain control of a, of a company, of an area, development, whatever that, that may be, because they've, they've created 10 full-time American jobs. And then the immigrants who are involved in this, uh, then they gain legal residency, they get green cards, they uh, uh, you know, can bring, you know, it's all for their entire family, and eventually... They uh, can apply for permanent residence if, if they like. And so the, the Chinese have taken control of this. And in, in, uh, the numbers that I have, and some of their older numbers, uh, so it's more than what I'm saying here, but uh, in 1990, the EB-5 uh, program uh, brought in approximately $6.7 billion to the U.S. and had 95,000 jobs. But the majority of these programs were from China, and uh, they've gotten involved in buying up dairy farms, cattle ranches, meatpacking plants, uh, other sources of our food supply, and uh, just a vast amount of... uh, uh, of American land that they, mm-hmm. they now control. Well, this is interesting when you talk about immigrants being able to get legal residency through this program and so forth. Explain how this works, because when you have these EB-5 centers and this idea that you have to invest a million dollars generally in some U.S. business to create at least 10 American jobs, are these jobs all going to immigrants or are they going to Americans who already live here? Is there a combination there? Or how, how do the immigrants get involved in taking those jobs? Well, basically, it's it's to provide ten jobs for Americans. If you're going to come in and invest and so forth and put all this together, then you need to supply at least ten jobs for Americans. Yeah. But uh, then you know it could be a project that supplies a hundred jobs for you know, for them. Okay. Uh, you know, to bring it in. So. Okay. Okay. That's interesting because, yeah. you're right, when you use the term American jobs, you generally think jobs in America, but you're talking about, yeah, what you're saying makes sense. Who came up with this program? Do we know exactly how this came into being and, and if the people who were involved in creating the program understood the implications if you begin to allow foreign investment from China? Yeah. Well, as I said, it came from the, uh, the, the Citizen Immigration Service, and, you know, they were looking at it as to, we're, we're investing, we're bringing uh, we're jobs to America, we're you know, foreign investors to come in and take care of it, and, and in exchange for that, we'll, we'll open our, our gates for, uh, for immigrants to come in from those countries and, and you know, put this together. Uh, so it sounded on paper like, oh, this is a good investment for us. Right. And, and, of course, we've been forced, you know, going into all these, uh, uh, you know, open borders and, and so forth anyway, this whole globalist plan. Uh, this was, you know, just part of it. But China figured it out and, uh, and began to use it. 
and uh, to their to their advantage. Wow. So this was back in 1990, which would have been under President George H.W. Bush. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's been quite a while. It's been quite a while. Why haven't we seen more on this particular program? It's interesting. I know you follow these trends quite closely, but I had not been aware of the details of this program until you wrote about it. Well, it's not talked about a lot. We are starting to hear much more about how much land and and businesses and so forth that China has bought in this country, and that's surprising a lot of people. But this has been going under the radar for a long time. And um, uh, as you know from from the article, I I brought up something that did make some headlines from people, and that was in 2014 when we had the standoff out in Nevada yes. with the, the Bundy family right. and other ranchers and so forth out there who were uh, on the, uh, the verge of losing their uh, farmland and their, you know, their ranches and so forth. And uh, people accused the Bundys of you know, violence and, and threatening uh, violence and what they did. But what they were really doing was pushing back against one of these programs. There is um, uh, the, the Bureau of Land Management uh, was accusing the cattle ranchers there of grazing their cattle on public lands and endangering the desert tortoise. That was the excuse they were using. Uh, in fact, the Bundys were about the last of 52 ranchers. The others had gone out of business under this. And what it was really about, it was an EB-5 uh, real estate deal. Uh, there's a company called the ENN Energy Group that wanted to uh, build a $5 billion solar farm uh, in that area that would encompass the Bundy Ranch and several of these other ones. Well, it's interesting to see that this was an EB-5 program working with the Chinese. But uh, it's interesting to see who the investors were in this ENN group. Yes. Uh, you know, the, 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 again, Chinese using the EB-5 program, but one of the negotiators for this was Rory Reed. Yep. Hang on a moment, Tom. We're going to keep people in suspense here so they'll come back. This is Janet Mefford today. We'll be back with Tom DeWeese right after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League, International. She's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now. And you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5 or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. 
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. Thanks for joining us. And it is evident that we need to pay attention to China for a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons has to do with what we're discussing with Tom DeWeese, who's my guest, president of the American Policy Center. He's been writing about China's threats to our sovereignty and highlighting the problem of Chinese colonization of the United States through this EB-5 program we've been discussing. And you brought up the fact before the break, Tom, that when we remember this Clive and Bundy showdown in 2014, and everybody thought it was just a bunch of nuts out in the West, you know, reacting to the government. You said this was involving the EB-5 program at that time, and there were some ties to the Harry Reid family as well. Wanted to let you pick up where we had to leave off there. Yeah, the uh, one of the representatives of, of this ENN Energy Group was Rory Reid, who was Senator Harry Reid's son. And uh, it, it's interesting because, it, it, you know, first of all, you know, they, they, as I said, they made the Bundys look like they were just really violent people who were bucking the government and the BL, Bureau of Land Management. And uh, what happened to them after all of that? I mean, they ended up being in prison. They ended up in solitary confinement, not even able to defend themselves in court and all kinds of things. What in the world? Why was there so much power, so much thrown at them for standing up against this? As I said, they were the last of 52 ranches, I believe is what what I was told. Well, interestingly, you know, Reed wasn't the only public figure involved in uh, this EB-5 scheme. Uh, there was also part of the deal included Anthony Rodham, hmm. Hillary Clinton's brother. And uh, he was also the former son-in-law of Barbara Boxer. Hmm. Also in the deal was Terry McCulloch, oh, who yeah. was a Clinton advisor, went on to become the, uh, the governor of Virginia. Uh, and they gained EB-5 investments for a, a car company and so forth. So the, the, they've been using these EB-5 programs to uh, fill their pockets, enrich themselves, and bringing the Chinese in to uh, put these things together. And, and what's you know, really uh, amazing are the, the companies that uh, are, are involved in this. Uh, here in, in where I am in Virginia, uh, we have Smithfield Foods, which is a major supplier of hams and things like that. Sure. China bought Smithfield Foods. Uh, it has 460 large farms, uh, facilities in 26 states, thousands of uh, employees, and they own that. They have built uh, 
developments, big luxury hotels and so forth in uh, San Francisco, and uh, another one in Manhattan, and some in Florida, and so on and so forth. This just you know thousands and thousands of acres and buildings and uh, companies that the, the, through this program the Chinese have been able to do. And then, as I said, these global corporations, we, we talk, we've talked in the past about public-private partnerships right. and these um, particularly global corporations that are, um, uh, you know, part of these public-private partnerships. So what, what is a public-private partnership? It is where these companies decide to go along with the program, and uh, for that, they get to go to the front of the line for all the goodies, tax breaks, locations for their businesses, things like that. Um, and the government gets to hide behind their advertising program uh, where they feature these programs and, and uh, you know, use them, uh, you know, uh, in propaganda, basically. Well, who is it that is selling these Chinese products? It's, you know, Walmart and Target. And if you take a look at the... Um, the whole COVID lockdown situation, these same corporations have been able to operate and they're making money in record numbers while local small businesses have been shut down and going out of business by the hundreds. Right. Uh, this just shows you the, the, the transition that is taking place and it's using this program as, as one of the... Uh, one of the ways to do it. Well, right. And I know that the story was largely suppressed before the election, thanks to big tech and their leftist ideology. But when you look at what happened with the Biden family, which hasn't fully been uh, explained to most American people because the media won't report on it fully, this is extremely concerning because now we have a president in the White House and there has been an investigation into his son and some of the financial ties to China. Now we learn about these other politicians who've been involved in these EB-5 schemes. Are they all in on this as far as being for it and allowing the continuation of China to buy land and invest in our economy? Because how in the world is this going to end well for the American people? This is actually quite terrifying that this is going on. Well, take a look at who is promoting these programs and doesn't let you talk about it. They sh shut off the entire investigation of Hunter Biden and what he's done. Yep. And we don't hear about that at all anymore. And, uh, you know, one of the, the other things I reported about was... Uh, uh, back uh, several years ago when, when there was a uh, uh, situation with immigration from China, there was a, um, a ship uh, that was, you know, came into the country and uh, was bringing some, some people here who were looking for a freedom here. That's called the Golden Venture. Yes. And uh, they, they were trying to escape the oppression of communist China. And, uh, you know, as, as the, you know, the, Bill Clinton change the rules. These people could have been able to come here under rules that George Bush put together, and they could have been able to come here and, and get some, uh, uh, you know, some safety and, and, and be able to live here. They would have been happy to be American citizens. Bill Clinton changed the rules, threw them in prison, and ended up sending them, you know, to, to send them back to China uh, because he didn't want to upset the Chinese and so forth. So, you just it goes on and on and on where they they play these games everything is to the advantage of china and china has now been recognized as a major threat to the united states and uh, even the the fbi director uh has, has said that uh, the acts of espionage and theft by china's government pose the greatest long-term threat in the to the future of the united states right. 
and step by step, these people we're talking about here, the, the Clintons, Harry Reid, on, on and on, of course, we know Biden and so forth involved, they have all been stuffing their pockets with riches from this, and they're allowing it to happen. Well, and at the same time, you have people like Eric Swalwell, who is caught you know, having a Chinese honey, and nothing happens to him. He just carries on like nothing happened. Nobody forces him out of Congress. Doesn't matter. Not only that, he gets to lead the investigation and calling for uh, Trump's second impeachment. Incredible. I know. It's incredible. It's incredible. But it makes sense when you explain to people what you're explaining. All of the ties here that you have of these politicians for the sake of money. You know, when we had President Trump, President Trump understood the threat that China posed, was trying to deal with this. What happens from here if you have an administration in who's all in with China in all of these ways that you've described? What happens next? More land bought up by China? I mean, where is this all headed? Just a complete takeover of the country? Is that what they're about? It. I mean, that's the way it appears. And, uh, you know, who can predict the future? But there's nobody now standing in the way, nobody standing up to it. One of the reasons they hated Donald Trump the way they did is because he put the plug on so many of these things. Yes. And uh, look at what they're doing, the, the, you know, the 40 executive orders and so forth, undoing all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, we hide the, what uh, uh, Biden's son has done, and we uh, have nobody standing in the way saying, no, wait, stop. And, you know, it's coming at us like a freight train. That's true. Is there anybody on the Republican side of the aisle who not only is on to this, but willing to do something legislatively to disband certain, you know, programs like you've talked about here with the EB-5 schemes or to enact legislation that would bring some of this to a halt and begin to go in the right direction? I recognize Congress is under the control of Democrats, but what are Republicans doing, if anything, to address this? For the most part, I see the Republicans just laying down and letting the Dem- I mean, first of all, the filibuster is the made most uh, important tool, the most powerful tool of a minority in the Senate. Yes. So when you know they're they're the minority, this gives them something to fight back with. What's the first thing that Mitch McConnell started negotiating on? We'll just do away with this. The filibuster. Yeah. Is he nuts? Yeah. You know, yes. Away <laughs> any power that he had yeah. to to try to stand up to this. And and the thing is that their majority, the Democrat majority in both houses, is so. Small, that it wouldn't take a whole lot to stand up and fight back if the Republicans would fight, but they're not. Yeah. Uh, I suppose Ted Cruz is the closest one to who would stand up. He's done some other things on some of these uh, programs that, uh, you know, speaking out against him and so forth. And of course, he's under attack now uh, in every direction yes. for standing up. So yeah. that's that's the game plan. I that's guess. that's the difficulty. And meanwhile, we have this continuing military buildup of China. Can you clue listeners in a little bit? on where that stands at the moment? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, under Jimmy Carter, we uh, gave up the Panama Canal. Yes. We had in this country something called the Monroe Doctrine that for uh, probably 100 years was recognized by other countries in South, Central, and North America that this is the United States backyard, and you don't mess with it. And if you try to bring any troops into this or do anything uh, that would impose on our our sovereignty and so forth, uh, we would stand up and say, get out. Well, Jimmy Carter gives up the Panama Canal, and China moves in. 
and uh, basically now controls both ends of the canal, uh, supplies of it and so forth. If we don't have access to the Panama Canal, our ships, if we were threatened, our ships on the, on the east or, or the west coast, say they need to get to the east coast, it would have to go clear around the bottom of South America mm. to get there, which, you know, it takes weeks. Sure. And, uh, you know, it, so our, our uh, defense is definitely, uh, you know, in jeopardy there. Plus, you have several South American countries that now are giving ports to China to, uh, to bring their ships in and so forth. There, what is there there to stop them from repeating the Cuban Missile Crisis and putting missiles in some of these other countries aimed at the United States? Oh, my goodness. And yet we do nothing. Yet we do nothing. Well, you can read more at AmericanPolicy.org. So grateful for Tom DeWeese. Tom, thank you for the update and for all your great work. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, we get to look at the results now from the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I know this is going to wade a little bit into the details here about a particular denomination, but I think it's important. We have talked for years. I have talked for years about Dr. Russell Moore. I think that he has been one of the most divisive people ever to lead in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I will die on that hill unless something changes significantly in the coming days. And then I will retract it if something miraculous occurs and he does a complete turnaround. But up until now, I'm one of those people, along with a lot of Southern Baptists, who believe that he is extremely divisive and has been a disaster for the Southern Baptist Convention. He leads the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And almost from the get-go, when he came into that that position, he started excoriating conservatives, making fun of conservatives, putting down conservatives, and that's just not the way you enter a job. I, I'm not saying you should ever do it, but I'm saying, especially when you are taking on that kind of a position in a conservative, largely conservative denomination, that's not how you make a good entrance. So from the get-go, when he started insulting Christian radio, which is when he really got on my radar back in 2014, he said that, you know, if, if all he knew of Christianity was what he heard on Christian talk radio, he'd hate it too. You just can't drop that kind of nuclear bomb on an entire industry of Christian talk radio hosts and not get some pushback. And he got quite a lot of pushback and he never apologized. So that was my opening introduction to Russell Moore, by and large, and it hasn't gotten any better. It's gotten substantially worse. And you might remember that this report was being formulated by the executive committee at the Southern Baptist Convention to look into some of the problems concerning, for example, giving to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, because a whole lot of churches were not happy with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for a host of reasons that we have gone into in great detail over the years and especially talked about in recent days. Uh, One of those things obviously has to do with the ongoing 
I don't want to say hatred, but intense dislike that Russell Moore has had for former President Trump. And this started back before the president ever got into office. And there was, you know, a Twitter fight between them a little bit. And he was a big never Trumper. Here's the thing about this. People will talk about the fact that you should really watch your politics. Well, I'm actually going to say a couple of things. On the one hand, this is a man who entered that position saying that what was wrong with conservative Christians was they confused politics with the gospel. First of all, I reject that out of hand because I don't believe that conservatives confuse politics with the gospel. I think they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and they believe in the Bible and they read the Bible and they see certain principles to be true and they would like those principles to be executed in the sphere of politics. There is nothing wrong with that and liberals do it all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. Are you supposed to believe the gospel and then just sit home? Because he didn't. When President Obama was in office, he would happily fly out to the White House and you see these glowing pictures of Russell Moore sitting there discussing amnesty with President Obama and he was happy as a clam. But when Trump got into office, he had been so obnoxious that he was persona non grata for four years. Now, my first question about that is, how is that effectively helping the Southern Baptist Convention and those people who are part of the denomination? If you have the head of the ERLC effectively hogtied because he's so offended the president of the United States that he can't do any meaningful work on behalf of this largest Protestant denomination in the United States, then why are you keeping the guy around? And I've asked that question over and over and over again. Why is this guy here? What does he do that is of any meaningful substance to the Southern Baptist Convention? I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm not saying he's done nothing that's been of any good at all. Uh, Maybe he's had a good tweet now and then. Maybe he's said something good about a lawsuit or something like that. But why do you need an entire organization like the ERLC to do nothing for the last four years to really interact with the presidential administration in any meaningful way. They're just treading water for four years, and that's an awful lot of money to be throwing down the drain, uh, especially when you look at the ERLC under Moore's leadership and recognize that those people are trying to take the denomination left and have done a pretty good job of turning some people in that direction. It's been about racial division, race baiting. It's been about amnesty and liberal immigration policies. It's about kicking conservatives and making conservatives feel guilty about this, that, and the other thing. It's about insulting conservative politicians. He jumps in the fray. He has nothing to say for the longest time during the pandemic about all of those churches who desperately wanted to meet but couldn't even after the major lockdown because of local leftist tyrants who wouldn't let them meet but would let abortion clinics open up. And what was Russell Moore doing? Oh, he was tweeting about country music. He was putting out podcasts talking about everything under the sun except what was actually going on as a front burner issue for Christians. He was nowhere. He did nothing. Why does this man have a job? So this is kind of the background to this report. So this report was looking into some of the complaints. And as you might recall, the ERLC pushed back against this whole effort at the time. And there was a whole, oh, this is terrible. And the executive committee is outside of its depth and it shouldn't be saying things like this. And they're not tasked with this particular duty, blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, now we're here. Religion News Service reports on this. SBC report calls never Trumper Russell Moore's agency a significant distraction. In a long-awaited report that was released Monday, 
This task force commissioned to study the SBC's ERLC calls the convention's public policy arm a significant distraction from the Great Commission work of Southern Baptists. Agreed. Blaming the ERLC for the loss of more than a million dollars in constituent church donations to the denomination, the task force, which was led by Georgia Pastor Mike Stone, quotes the leader of a state Baptist convention as saying, the ERLC has been a stumbling block, not worth the mission dollar investment. I also agree with that. But there seems to be as much politics as economics in the report's conclusions. I don't agree with that. I'm going to tell you why. It notes that in recent years, the fear of a liberal drift, the the word liberal here by the reporter is put in quotes, a liberal drift in the denomination. There has been a liberal drift in the denomination. It's not virtual. You don't put scare quotes around the word liberal. Are you kidding me? Of course, the denomination has become more liberal because you got a bunch of woke people at the top of this thing and they're put there by design. It's not scare quotes. It's actual fact. This liberal drift has led some churches to leave the Southern Baptist Convention or to withhold giving. And part of that dissatisfaction is aimed at the ERLC and particularly at Russell Moore. Though a staunch opponent of abortion and same-sex marriage, two of the issues most important to politically conservative evangelicals, Moore's views on other issues over the course of the Trump administration have landed him in hot water. Well, guys, do a little Googling because I did an entire article on Trump. I'm sorry, on Moore versus conservatives. This isn't just about Trump because everybody was jumping in on this around the time of the last election and saying, oh, these Christians just don't like his commitment to moral principle that would cause him to stand up and speak like a prophet against Donald Trump. And I was like, no, no, guys, you haven't been following this story long enough. He's been irritating conservatives for a lot longer than just this moment of opposing Donald Trump. The report does not call for the ouster of Russell Moore, unfortunately, but it does recommend that the ERLC no longer make public comments about any political candidate and only address issues that the SBC has already issued resolutions on. A spokeswoman for the ERLC told Religion News Service that Moore would not comment on the report. (laughs) Good, saying that the agency's board of trustees has instructed him not to speak publicly about it. Hmm. But David Prince, chair of the agency's trustees, said in a statement that Southern Baptists can see this report for exactly what it is and claim that the ERLC has served Southern Baptists faithfully during a time of political, cultural, and in some cases, denominational chaos. How have they served the SBC faithfully? What have they done? Tell me what this organization has done that's been of any worth. They held a pro-life conference. They've been involved in the Evangelicals for Life where they pick up the old leftist activist rhetoric of Ron Sider and try to tell you that if you really want to be pro-life, you have to be pro-immigration and you have to be pro-refugee resettlement because of world relief being the arm of the National Association of Evangelicals, which are more liberals that are friends with Russell Moore. He's been involved in all kinds of things, but what is the purpose of the ERLC? I'm still scratching my head over it, but I'm going to dive into some more in this particular report because there's some good stuff to be had. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today.
Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, the new executive committee report is out on the ERLC. This is from the Southern Baptist Convention. Report to the SBC Executive Committee by the ERLC Study Task Force. That's the task force. And so they have come back and they've looked into the value of the ERLC. I was telling you a little bit about this. Quoting from RNS, David Prince, who's chair of the agency's trustees, said much of this chaos. He's the guy who said the ERLC has served Southern Baptists faithfully. Uh, Prince added, much of this chaos remains with us, including widespread news of many of our black and brown brothers and sisters leaving the SBC, that that should be alarming to all of us. Regardless, all this and more is why I am grateful the ERLC serves our churches with a vibrant and bold gospel witness day in and day out. So it only matters if black and brown brothers leave the SBC? That's the tragedy? If whites leave, that's fine? Why would you single out black and brown brothers leaving the SBC as being a particular tragedy as opposed to anybody leaving the SBC? What, what does this reveal about them? Well, you know, we've told the story about how you've had black churches leave because their pastors didn't think the SBC was woke enough. You had a number of SBC leaders finally guilted into coming forward and rejecting critical race theory. And that made some of these pastors mad because they believe in critical race theory. And so they left the SBC. Well, you know what? Nothing like a nice commitment to to uh, principle, right? And biblical principle. It's just, you know, they're just showing their hand at any rate. So I'm going through this and they're talking about the funding of the cooperative program and how they've heard anecdotally, this was reported earlier, that churches did not want to give to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention because they didn't like the ERLC and or they didn't like Russell Moore. So listen to what they report here. This is quite interesting. 
Reports in Baptist Press are almost always, and Baptist Press is the journalism arm, quote unquote. I will put scare quotes around that. Journalism arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, They're almost always about cooperative program funds sent to the national budget. These monies are sent from the budgets of the various state and regional conventions. In recent years, these state partners have sent increasing percentages of their budgets to support national SBC causes. Therefore, funds received for the national budget can reflect a slight increase while nationwide cooperative program giving is in decline. What are they talking about there? They're saying that when Baptist Press does its Pravda routine, they're like, cooperative program is giving is up. It's up. And they're saying, well, right. But there can be a slight increase in the national budget, but the nationwide giving is down. In recent years, the allocation forwarded by the states to the national convention has increased from an average of 37% to 42%. But total dollars received by our state and regional convention partners has been in steady decline. Percentage giving by churches has fallen by more than half over the last three decades. This is despite the fact that total giving to Southern Baptist churches has grown from around $4 billion to around $12 billion in the same time frame. Second, the decline in nationwide cooperative program giving began many years prior to the current leadership of the ERLC. The task force knew from its inception that the long-term downward trend in giving could not be solely attributed to concerns over the current direction of the ERLC. But now listen to some of these findings. This is interesting. Based on the cooperative program allocation budgets of various state conventions, because they went to these conventions, they sent out a confidential questionnaire to each executive director of state and regional conventions, and they wanted to get some feedback. Based on the allocation budgets of these various state conventions, they got 15 responses representing 74% of the total dollars received by the SBC Executive Committee. Now listen to this. No state convention reported data that any church had verifiably increased cooperative program support because of an appreciation for the ERLC. Now you may say, okay, so what? Well, nobody loved it so much and the stuff that's going on so much over at the ERLC and in Russell Moorville that they decided, I'm going to give more money because they're so awesome. No one did that of these people who reported. This, of course, does not include any church that has done so without publicizing to the state convention its rationale for doing so. Several of the 15 state conventions reported little to no negative effect from the ministry of the ERLC, but other conventions reported more significant challenges, including churches that have withheld funds, have negatively designated funds, or are considering doing so because of their concerns with the ERLC. One state convention reported that more than 250 churches are considering withholding or negatively designating funds or have already done so. That's a lot of churches. This number represents a significant percentage of the churches currently in friendly cooperation with that state convention. Some churches are considering a complete withdrawal from the SBC because of the belief that the national convention is moving in a liberal direction. The ERLC is listed as one of those concerns. The state convention reported that serious concerns about the ERLC exist, with 10 of the top 30 cooperative program-giving churches potentially impacting a total of $2.45 million from those 10 churches alone. That's a lot of cash. Another state convention verified that $1.1 million has been withheld due to the ERLC. Based on communications with other churches considering the same approach, The state executive estimated that $1.5 million of cooperative program giving 
is in jeopardy in the state. So I guess this is going to be a little embarrassing for those liberals who are screaming, there's no problem, cooperative giving is up. Well, that's not what they're finding. It goes on for many, many paragraphs. Another state reported 94 churches have either decreased or completely eliminated CP support this year at a total budget cost of approximately half a million dollars. Based on actual conversations with these pastors, the state executive estimated that 50% have done so because of a lack of confidence in many national SBC issues. So what is the upshot of this? The upshot of this is that the feedback they're getting, by and large, is that people are not increasing giving because they love the ERLC. They did get feedback from some people who like the ERLC, and they got some feedback from those who don't like it. But here's the problem. If you have a divisive organization and a divisive leader such that it is dividing the denomination, you don't continue in that direction. And even more than that, if you have somebody who is that divisive and he really is a good guy, he would step down. That's my opinion. Who in the world wants to, if he is a good guy, be in a position where you are dividing churches, you are dividing Southern Baptists across the country, you are, you are the cause of lots of infighting and lots of upset that people feel about the ERLC. Why would you want to be causing division like that? I think in the mind of Russell Moore, based on what he has written in past days, he really sees himself as something of a change agent. He really does. And you can go to all these liberal sources that he loves to talk to and loves to grant interviews to, whether it's the Washington Post or the Atlantic or recently Time Magazine, where they referred to him as God's lobbyist. And I know he loves being fond over, man. That guy has a huge ego. He loves it when people just praise him to the hilt. What does that say if the liberal media loves you? And they make these noises. Oh, he's a social conservative. If he's a social conservative, then why does he always come down on the woke side? I mean, he couldn't be in the position if he weren't pro-life. And I'm not saying that he's faking being pro-life, but a real pro-lifer is not going to stand up at some conference in Washington and equate anything with the genocide of abortion as being equal in scope to that issue, such that Christians need to give equal attention to leftist causes along with the abortion issue. It just makes no sense. It makes no sense. He loves being spoken well of by the left. He eats it up. And don't forget what he did back in 2014 when they had that conference on family and all these gay activists were brought in and our friends from Restored Hope Network and the ex-gay community, these wonderful Christians who you hear a lot on my show, they went, they were told, you can't have a booth, there's no room. They showed up, Stephen Black told me this from First Stone Ministries, they showed up to get, you know, be up there at the conference and there was plenty of room. They just weren't allowed to have a booth. They weren't allowed to speak. They weren't allowed to do anything. And then there was a closed door meeting between some of those Southern Baptist leaders and gay activists. And we still don't know what they talked about. It was well into the night. The human rights campaign reported on this change agent stuff, right? Because then when people tried to go to Russell Moore on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting in 2018, which I attended, he didn't want to be asked about revoice. And the fact that Karen Swallow Pryor, who was a research fellow at the ERLC at the time, had endorsed it, it was just kind of swept under the rug. There's a lot that is not talked about, and there's not an accountability, and certainly not to the degree that needs to be there. And they address this in the report as well at the ERLC. Again, I agree with those who say 
uh, on the one hand, defund the ERLC. I don't see how you're getting bang for your buck here. But more than that, why would anybody who is such a divisive figure stay in that position when it's not clearly serving the good of the people who are paying his salary? It's just unconscionable to me, other than he just wants to be in power because he loves it. And they're, gonna, they're not going to write about him over at the Atlantic if he gives up that job. But that's the disgrace of it all. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us here on Janet Mefford today. Keep praying for our friends in the Southern Baptist Convention. This is going to be a critical year for them going the biblical way rather than the woke way. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot for being with us. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or janetmefford.com.